So the Rings of Power, this is the prequel to the Lord of the Rings. How many of you have seen the trilogy Lord of the Rings here? All right, all 70,000 hours of that trilogy. And um, that phenomenal trilogy, Tolkien's trilogy. And this is like, so this series is pre-Frodo, Bilbo, and, and Samwise. But I got I to gotta be honest, the only reason why the, that LifePoint chose to do this one, this focus, this, this day, was because one of the other teaching pastors is a Lord of the Rings nut, okay? It's Pastor Kale, and he owns, I'm told, his own hobbit sword. If you own your own hobbit sword, raise your hand. Don't raise your hand, all right? Just keep, just don't. <laughs> Even though the trailer was awesome, I, I actually had never seen the series until I was asked to speak on it, so I watched a little bit, and I agree with the critics that would say that it wasn't nearly as good as Lord of the Rings. Um, but what I do love about it is, that it does capture some things, and we're going to look at those. And really the storyline of the series is Sauron is off to capture Middle-earth, and Galadriel, who you saw a little bit of in that trailer, she fights Sauron, obviously, and in the process she ends up losing her brother. But what she discovers along the way is that her motives are a little bit off, and she realizes that she not only needs to fight the evil outside of herself, around her, but also the evil within inside of her. And as people, I think that we can relate to that in so many ways that we must deal with both the sin, with the brokenness in us and the sin that is around us. That we must grapple with it. There's going to be a tension that we're going to struggle with. And during this series, you know, we've been right looking at the, the, the John, the, uh, John, the Gospel of John, the Apostle, and what he has to say. And what I love is that he has, maybe more than any other, a lot to say about uh, John the Baptist who we're going to look at. And so in John chapter 1, I want you to look at it with me in verse 23 is we're going to kind of zoom into John the Baptist's life with the backdrop of this um, series we're in. Verse 23 says, John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. You know, the characteristic of John the Baptist, maybe some of you would have something in mind for him, but the one thing that comes out to me, I wrote down, it's humility. And what a crazy term in today's modern world. I mean, John the Baptist had people coming to him right and left thinking that he was the Messiah. I mean, in a modern day world, he would have like had a huge podcast. He could have had a huge following, social media influencer. He probably could have had his own um, church in a lot of different ways. But with like kind of like a nod to the rings of power, he's the prequel to Christ. And, and John was incredible because he realized that he actually just followed the king. He was a part of the kingdom. He wasn't the king. Jesus was the king. In fact, John's mantra was, hey, I must decrease so he can increase. Jesus must increase, therefore I must decrease. And man, if I could just think through that phrase, if I could just grab a hold of that phrase in my heart, in my head, if we could just be done for the day, couldn't we? And we could just walk away saying, man, if I could just decrease in my life, how much better would my marriage be? How much better would I be as a parent? Gosh, parenting is hard. How much better would I be as a coworker, a leader, a family member, a friend? If I was decreasing, Jesus was increasing in my life, and when I had humility in my life, man, I could walk away right now with that, and God could spend the rest of my life challenging me. 
Well, it's interesting, Jesus, he, he goes on in, in Matthew 11, he uses a, like a really unique metaphor to describe this in John. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 7, it says, And as they went away, Jesus, he began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind. There's the metaphor. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you. And even more than a prophet. So, so John, he, he's an interesting guy, right? We're told that he wore like animal skins, kind of a little bit eccentric. He, he lived in the wilderness. Matter of fact, he probably would fit right in in Middle Earth, right? In the Lord of the Rings. Like, hey, what's up, John? Him and Frodo hanging out, best buds. We probably know a lot about him, that he was passionate, and he also loved passionately those who wanted to be baptized in. But we do know this, that he was not a reed shaken in and by the wind. In fact, Jesus would go on to talk about how, how John, in a lot of ways, he was a reed that didn't budge. He was a reed that didn't bend. And I love that because he was committed. And, and that is such a big deal because we live in a world right now that to be considered a good person, we've got to bend to everybody's whim, don't we? That we have to, in a lot of ways, bend to everyone's feelings. And this is going to get at like a lesson, one of the lessons, one of two lessons that I really want to camp on today. And the lesson from John's life that I want you to hear, I want you to process in your own heart and your head is this, that we live in the tension of truth and compassion. And, and the word that I want to like camp on is the word tension. When I was in college, I was taught this one time, and I've never forgotten it as long as I live. You got a rubber, I've got a rubber band here, and a rubber band stretches. And when you stretch a rubber band, what lies in the middle of that, the rubber band? Anybody? Tension, right? So when I stretch a rubber band out, right, and I let it go on one side, it, 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 pain is inflicted. Okay, and then when I stretch it out and I let go on the other side, pain is inflicted. So in a lot of ways, there is this tension that must be managed and kept in order to utilize the rubber band in its proper way. And in the same way, we live in a world, in a day and time, where we have to navigate the tension of truth and compassion. And what happens when, you know, you have all compassion and no truth? What happens when you live with all truth and no compassion? So we have to live in this tension, and we should simultaneously, look, be granite strong like John about truth, but at the same time, tender and compassionate and loving, just like Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I'm like a ping pong ball, one way or the other, but managing the tension, it's something that I still find myself asking God to help me in so often. John was a great example, though. I mean, he... He was like a mastermind in being able to speak truth. I mean, he did it over and over and over again. I'll give you an example of that. He was critical of this leader in his day called Herod Antipas. He was a Roman king in Galilee. And basically, he throws John in prison. And then Jesus, instead of avoiding Antipas, what does Jesus do? He actually goes to Galilee where the, the king is. And the question is, like, why? Why was it so important that John the Baptist is willing to speak against him? Why is it important that Jesus would literally go to where uh, the king is? Why is it they're standing in truth? Well, here's a little bit of reason why. Herod Antipas uh, basically at first had married his 
his enemy's daughter. Okay, it's, it's what you'd call royal intermarriage. It's a diplomatic move. He didn't love her, but he was like, well, the idea is like, if I marry his daughter, he won't attack me because he doesn't want his daughter to die. So he marries her, and in the process, along the way, he falls in love with his sister-in-law, which is a whole other message. But because he loves her and love wins out, right? And here he, 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 he pr- pr- proposes to her and she says, all right, I'll marry you, but you got to divorce your first wife. So like I said, love wins, not a Phi Beta Kappa move by any stretch of the imagination. But he breaks up or he divorces his first wife and his ex-father-in-law isn't too happy. So he charges after Herod, and he takes 20,000 with him, and Herod brings 10,000, and who wins? Well, obviously the 20,000, and there's a humiliation in regards to Herod's ego and everything containing. And here we have Jesus in Galilee, and he's basically going to speak truth to that, and you're going to catch up with this in Luke chapter 14 and verse 28. Jesus says, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation, is not able to finish it, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. And so Jesus, he's using sarcasm. I love to use sarcasm. He's like, hey, what kind of a dim, bald you know, leader builds something, doesn't consider the cost, doesn't lay out the plans. Like, that doesn't make any sense at all. But then he says, let me tell you another one. And in the backyard of Herod, he says this in verse 31. Or what king? They all know what king he's talking about. Going out to encounter another king. They all know which one he's talking about in war. Will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against with 20,000. I think that's what all the young people in the room would call savage. Like Jesus right here, right now in this moment, he, he's speaking against it. And the gospel, our king, he, he makes us humble and fierce all at the same time. He makes us truthful and tender. This beautiful like mixture. And he challenges those who are blunt force objects and those who are compassionate to the core. And he rounds us off in a beautiful, beautiful way. You know, some people would say to me, like, you know, being a Christian is kind of boring, Ray. And I'd say, not if you're following the way that Jesus lived. It's not boring. It's the most crazy, joyful war you've ever seen in your entire life. You know, in, in the rings of power, it's presented like as if good and like evil are inside everyone. And along the way, there's this distinction that's made. And, and really, the, I think that's what Tolkien did so well. And in a lot of ways, I think it's good theology. And here's where um, things go sideways, I think. The premise is offered that you need to touch evil so that you know uh, what good is. In fact, um, Gabri, um, G- uh, Galadriel's brother actually tells her at one point, She says, sometimes you have to, or he says, sometimes you have to touch the darkness in order to see the light. And it kind of reminded me of the Garden of Eden when the serpent says to Eve, he says, if you take of the fruit, you will know both good and you will know evil. And the great thing about the John the Baptist is, is that he is brave enough, right, to fight and humble enough to know that he needs God in order 
to do it. That he, he knows that he needs God to overcome his weakness, but at the same time, he's got strength because he knows the kind of God that he serves. And man, it, what it, it just it like points to that phrase that Paul says in the New Testament. He says, when I am weak, then I am what? I'm, I'm strong. You see, this beautiful weakness this demonstrated in John's life. And in, in Luke 7, John is in prison. He's been thrown in there, and he's going to demonstrate his, his weakness. And he, and he asks a messenger to send this to Jesus. And in Luke 7, chapter, uh, chapter 7, verse 18, I'm sorry, he says, The disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John calling two of his disciples to him. He sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? So John the Baptist, the, the one Jesus called the greatest born of all women, the prophet, what is he doing? He's doubting. And I don't know about you, but that is incredibly encouraging to me. John's asking, did I live all of my life for nothing? Am I imprisoned for the wrong man? Is Jesus the right guy? Do I have all this figured out or have I stumbled along the way? He's doubting. And I would probably attest that everyone in this room would probably some way, somehow say, yeah, I, I, I resonate with John. There's doubt in my heart too. There's doubt in my head at times too. But then here's what Jesus says back. I want you to look in chapter 7, verse 22 and following. Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have heard good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Jesus is like, I want you to tell John this, and then he lists these things. And the reason why he lists those things that you, we just read off was because the Hebrews in the first century would have recognized this as the prophecy from Isaiah 61. 500 years previous to Jesus, they would have kind of clued in and been like, oh, I'm seeing all the puzzle pieces come together. He quoted it earlier in his ministry, Jesus did. In fact, in, in Luke chapter 4, he did the same thing. He says in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. So Jesus, he basically gives John's messengers this answer for John. And he's recounting basically his mission statement using Isaiah chapter 61. Jesus says, hey, I want you to go tell John the blind see, the lepers are cleansed, the poor get the gospel. But here's the thing. There's a difference between Luke chapter 4 and what we just read in Luke 7. And it's easy to miss, but John, right, he, wouldn't have, he, he would have noticed. See, Jesus doesn't tell John that the captives are freed. Why? Because John would never leave his prison cell. John, John would be beheaded. John would lose his life for his faith. And in the midst of doubt, he would encounter faith, but yet his faith would lead him to his very execution. Isn't it interesting that, that John is born a year before Jesus? 
and then John dies a year before Jesus would die. Both to proclaim the gospel, both to send a mission out into the world to the point where some 2,000 years later, here we are, celebrating the very good news that Jesus would live, die, and be resurrected for. It's a beautiful thing, I think, and I think it's one of the reasons why Tolkien's Tolkien's writings have endured, in my opinion, all of these years, because he has this way of unearthing doubt in his main characters. I mean, my favorite character in Lord of the Rings, and I'm not a huge Lord of the Rings fan, but Gandalf, I, I just was fascinated with him. And what does Gandalf do at times? Doubt. And I think there's this, res, this resonation with all of us, and it reflects maybe even the greatest of stories. There's people that just like you and just like me that we struggle with this thing, even one of the disciples, maybe you don't know him, maybe you know him, but I'll start his name out and maybe you can finish it, Doubting Poor Thomas. We all know him as Doubting Thomas, and yet, man, he would live his life in such a way that there, there was a lot of faith. There was a lot of faith. I mean, in fact, you know, Jesus sent a bunch of people out, and all of them were kind of like doubting, and, and he was the one that stuck up and said, no, no, let's go. It was Doubting Thomas. In fact, he would have said this in John chapter 11. He said, let's also go where Jesus sent us that we may die with him. Now, he didn't lose his faith at that point, but he would lose his faith later on when he would, after the resurrection of Jesus, he would go on to share the gospel in India and be the first missionary there and he would be beheaded for his, he would be martyred for his faith. And therein lies a tension, right? The, the, the tension that I want to talk about. The first tension was of compassion, right, of truth. But the second tension is, is, is of um, two different distinctions. It's of doubt and it's of faith. Now, a little bit about me. I, I, I've been married for over 16 years. I have two daughters. Um, one is nine, one, one is 11, and um, they're, right now they're in Lexington, Kentucky, where we live. Uh, we're actually praying about moving to Columbus, Ohio. We're not sure yet, but um, I'd appreciate your prayers as we're trying to process all of that. If so, we will, we will actually um, attend a life point. Um, but anyways, when my wife and I were first married, you know, one of the things my wife and I love to do is hike. Anybody love to hike here? Okay, and we love to hike. We've hiked several 14,000-foot mountains, and we love to do that, and, and it's hard, but we enjoy the process of it, and there's some places even on the AT, the Appalachian Trail, that are really cool, and one of them was Ravencliff Falls, and that's down in Georgia, and um, we were hiking there one time, and we, we get all the way to Ravencliff Falls, and we eat dinner there, and my first daughter is like one years old. She's in like this little papoose backpack in the, in, that we carried in the front, and it, the sun is starting to set. We had a great dinner, and we're like, we better get back. We had our, our chocolate lab with us, who's named Buck, and he's about 90 pounds. And uh, we packed back up, and, 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 and Sarah's got our little daughter like this, and we're hiking back. And it's rocky. I mean, it's not like paved or anything. And it's a pretty tough hike. It's three miles back. And about a mile into it, our dog had disappeared around the corner, and he starts barking. And I'm like, why is Buck barking? He never barks like that. And then all of a sudden, I hear a different noise. And I'm like, what is that noise? I, and I told my wife, I stopped, and I looked at her on the trail. I was like, that sounds like a baby bear, okay? And she's like, well, how do you know? I'm like, well, that's what it sounds like on TV. I've never heard one in person, but <laughs> sure enough, we round the bend, and our dog has cornered a baby black bear cub up in a tree. And, the, and the, like, just like on a movie, it's like crying, looking at the, the do our dog, and I knew exact, what are you thinking? 
where's mama bear, right? That, the only time a black bear has ever killed a human being on the eastern side of the United States is when they've messed with the cub. So I just, just I, like, I didn't even think, right? I grabbed my daughter in the papoose. I pu- held her like that, and I took off with my wife. I said, we are going to run as fast as we can away from this scenario. So it's me, my wife, our daughter, and our dog who has no idea what's going on, but he thinks it's just fun to run. All right, so we're running, we're running. Well, I told you there's rocks. Well, after a mile of running in hiking boots, I got tired and I tripped on a rock and our daughter goes flying out of our, my arms and she lands on the trail in front of me. So like I'm laying on the ground, I'm bleeding at this point. I'm not exaggerating. Our child is laying there screaming and my wife is, who was behind me comes like around me like there was a football fumble, picks up our daughter and disappears around the corner and says, hope you're okay. (laughs) You know, when I tell this story, she hates it because she's like, man, you make me sound like I'm terrible. And I'm like, well, (laughs) but I remember in that moment, I, I just got up and I turned around and I thought, well, it's me and mama bear and she's gonna have to get through me if she's going to try to get my family. And that mama bear, bear came around the corner, and I grabbed her by the... And I slammed... No, no, I didn't. I didn't. I never saw... I never saw the, the bear. Um, but it was in that moment where I had doubt and faith, where I doubted the next moment. I didn't know if it was my last And at the same time, I said, I'm ready, Lord. And I think that's kind of what it feels like, right? You don't know what's around the corner. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know how things are going to go. But you do know this, that you know who holds the future, right? If you're a follower of Jesus today, like, I just want to encourage you that. And if today you've come here and you're exploring, you don't know what all of this has to to do. And maybe you're still just has a lot of questions. I just want to tell you that that following Jesus promises you someone who will faithfully walk beside you the rest of your life in the most and strongest moments of doubt, just like he's done in my life and just like he's done in so many else's here uh, today. Thomas, he demonstrated that faith and, and that doubt at the same time in so many ways. And my encouragement would be to you and to me that along the way that we would have this, this kind of like this response to the moments of indifference in our life like the guy in Mark chapter 9 where he goes to Jesus and he's a father and his daughter is sick and he says, hey Lord, Jesus, could you heal my child? And Jesus is back. All things are possible to him who believes. And this dad in like raw emotion coming right back at Jesus, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Like, I believe, but man, I don't believe. <laughs> Lord, I believe, but I, I, I'm struggling to believe because the diagnosis came back. Lord, I believe, but I, I don't believe because my child is isolated at school, even though we believe in you. Lord, I believe, but like we can't have a child. And yet, like all these people that don't believe in you seem to have like more kids than they want. Lord, I believe, but... I struggle with unbelief. Lord, I believe, but I struggle with unbelief. Lord, why? But I believe. 
you know, and I'm not advocating for a kind of faith that's Pollyanna, that's just like, oh, you know, fake and everything is good. But I'm advocating for a faith that is trusts in the rock-solid nature of who God really is. I'm a big baseball fan, and I grew up playing ball, and I, Pastor Corey, he told me he's a baseball guy too, and I had an opportunity to be a chaplain for the, the Reds for a while, and um, and I've, I know a lot of MLB guys, and one of the guys I never got to meet that I always wanted to was Dave Dravecki. Dave Dravecki was a pitcher, and he's very famous. You can look him up later, but he's passed away, but he's very famous because he's in the middle of a pitch, and something snapped in his elbow, and basically they found cancer in his arm. They had to amputate the arm to save his life. And he'd go on to throw with one arm. He would say about doubt and difficulty. He would say these things. He would say, I'm sorry, but to me, forcing your mind into sunshine thoughts when you're depressed is like standing in the rain and denying it's raining and there's a storm. Faith isn't denying the weather or doubt that, that sweeps over your life. Faith, it's believing that behind the cloud waits a faithful God. And what I love is, I love is that so many times those storms, right, they throw us into the rock of ages that never moves. And we can hold on to it over and over and over again like John the Baptist did, like Thomas did. And the lesson here is that we live in a tension of faith and doubt. And may we live in that tension maybe prayerfully the rest of our very lives. And, and we know this, that Jesus went through it. I mean, you see it in the Garden of Gethsemane. In a moment of humanity, Jesus, he says these words, Father, let this cup pass from me. And then in the security of deity, he says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And he certainly would have faith to go to the cross. And the good news is that God, he had a plan to rid the world of evil. That one day, there will be no more evil, that death will be dead. And that plan centers around the sending of his son, Jesus, to rescue us from the curse of the first Adam and to crush the serpent of Eden. The New Testament actually calls Jesus the second Adam, according to Romans chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Why? Because Christ's life and his work undoes the work of the first Adam. See, Christ's obedience actually undoes the disobedience of the, of the first Adam. And the second Adam undoes the first work of the first Adam of brokenness, when Christ brings completion and, and peace into our lives. And, and the first Adam would bring death into the world. The first Adam would actually die and is in a grave today. But the second Adam, Jesus Christ, yes, he was crucified. Yes, he was put in a grave. And yes, three days later, he would rise from the grave, defeating death and pointing to the day that one day, one day, there will be no mourning. There will be no sadness. And we will have perfect, um, um, perfect um, really just experience with God and all, uh, and, and all living things. And that's found in Revelation chapter uh, 21. And the beauty of it is this. That life to come, we hold in tension with where we are now. That we are here and there's God and there's this tension that we manage the rest of our life in faith and in doubt, in compassion and in truth. And the prayer is, is that our lives will rep 
replicate that of John the Baptist and Thomas and so many who came before us. Faith and film, they collide, right? But it's the faith of these disciples, of these brave men and even women in the New Testament that point us to living a life today. Amen? Would you bow your head with me? Would you um, maybe just hit the airplane mode on your heart and your brain for a moment? And maybe today you brought in a, a spirit of doubt. Maybe you've been walking down the road of deconstructing your faith. Maybe you never told anybody. Maybe you, you brought in today a struggle in parenting, a struggle in friendship, a struggle in a marriage. There has been all compassion and no truth or all truth and no compassion. Or maybe there's a burden that you carry. You don't know how to wrestle it in your heart. You don't know how to see it in your, your head come out. Or, or maybe today you, 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 you haven't um, really had much faith and you've just let doubt just, just capsize you. And you're now you're just like in all of this shame. I just want you, no matter where you are right now, I want you to put your eyes and your attention now on Jesus, the author and creator of our faith, the one who sustains us, the one who gives us hope. And I just want to pray for you wherever you are, however you are right now. Heavenly Father, I, you know each and every person in this room because you are omniscient, you're omnipotent, you're, you, you're everywhere and you know everything. And because of those things, Lord, I don't have to introduce these people to you. But I pray that these people would pursue and lean closer to you today. That they would, Lord, ask you to help them hold in tension the things that we read about and the things that you encourage us to do. I pray that you would Help each and every one of these people today to, through your grace, by your Holy Spirit, to walk and step with you. And all along the way, Lord, we're praying, we're saying, Lord, we need you. Lord, we need you. In your name we pray.